The title of number seven is The Power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us power. Billy Graham once said, every true believer is charismatic. End quote. Every true believer is charismatic. How many know a few crazy charismatics from your past? Anybody? I was one of them. Kind of am still. Anyway. Charismatic, though, the word charisma, we get that from the Greek word charis, which means grace or gift. It can mean grace or gift. Charisma in the Greek. Grace or gift. Good thing for you today around the dinner table. Tell people you learned a little bit of Greek today. Charisma means grace or gift. And what Jesus did was he gave us the grace to forgive us of our sins so that he could give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not just for Pentecostals and Charismatics. The Holy Spirit is for the entire body of Christ. Every Christian that names the name of Christ, every person that believes Jesus died for their sins and rose again on the third day and declares that he is Lord, every single one can be filled with the Holy Spirit and do life in the power of the third person of the Trinity and not their own. You can have this power. I have this power. And I was thinking about the fact that I am alive today because of the power of the Holy Spirit. I exist because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain why. When my uh, parents were young, they were going to college over at UMass, and they met, and my mom was raised in a Pentecostal church, and she wandered away from the Lord and from the church. My father was raised in a congregational church that barely talked about Jesus and salvation, and they got together, they dated, they married, and uh, they're happily married now almost 60 years, God bless them, but they were, yeah. But they wandered away from the Lord. My mother wandered away from the Lord. My father probably really never knew him. They uh, had two daughters. They were raising those daughters. They thought life was done. Life was complete. They were going to raise those daughters and party with their friends. And they would. They would do what young 20-year-old people do. Party with their friends, go out drinking, mess around, do all that kind of stuff as a young married couple. And then uh, they finally came around to the fact that they have kids that they're responsible for, as many people do, and they needed, they needed to get their lives right. My mother's old heritage from her past. Raise up a child in the way that he should go. When they're old, they will not depart from it, right? So my mother decided, hey, we, we got to get back to the, the church. And so they started shopping around for a church. And one of their friends from college invited them to an Episcopalian church in northwest Connecticut. And they went to this Episcopalian church, and they heard a preacher in that church. But that Episcopalian priest was not an ordinary Episcopalian priest. He was a charismatic, born-again Episcopalian priest. How many know they're not making many of those anymore? Amen. <laughs> Drag queen priest, yes. Born again, not so much. Anyway, uh, that's for the deep end. Uh, <laughs> so, so they go to this church, and he's talking about repentance of sin, repentance from sin, turning to Christ, being born again. My parents are hearing this. And then he talks about that you don't just get saved, you get filled. You don't just get saved, you get filled with the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just take away your sins. He wants to replace your sins with the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I get a good amen at every location? And he talks about this, and my parents go up to the altar. They get filled with the Holy Ghost. They get prayed for. They speak in other tongues, that crazy moment, and then they're totally radically committed to the Lord Jesus. Their whole household changed. The spirit of their lives and marriage totally changed on fire for Christ Jesus. And then my father decides, let's have another baby. Ta-da! I'm thankful today for the power of the Holy Spirit. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And my mother came from a big Italian family where if you didn't have a son, you were a failure as a mother. So she prayed. <laughs> Thank God we're not like that anymore. Um, but she prayed for his son and she said the Hannah prayer. She said, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll give him to your service all the days of his life. She never told me that. She never told me that. And uh, then I went to a youth camp when I was 12 years old and I got filled with the Holy Ghost, came down to the altar, somebody laid hands on me. And I, and it might not be your tradition, you might have been Baptist or Catholic or whatever growing up. Don't get freaked out when I share this, but I spoke in other tongues. I still speak in other tongues. I don't think everybody has to speak in tongues, but I speak in tongues. I love the fact that I have that gift. It's a blessed gift, thank God for it. Uh, I don't do it publicly, I follow scripture's commands there. So nonetheless, we, we speak in, I speak in tongues and I was born, I was, <laughs> I was radically changed. And I remember it was a Tuesday night at that youth camp up in New Hampshire, up in New Hampshire. And I, Got on the phone. I remember, I remember pay phones. I had to put the coins in the phones. <laughs> Called my mom. I said, Ma, you'll never guess what happened at youth camp. And this is what she said. God, honest truth. This Pentecostal born and bred woman, she said, don't tell me you smoke marijuana. <laughs> I said, Mom, no. <laughs> I said, I got filled with the Holy Ghost. I spoke in tongues. She's like, oh, that's wonderful. So, you know. A year later, same camp, the Lord called me into ministry. He said, I want you to preach the word. I had this unrelenting burden to teach people what God's word says. I didn't create it, didn't come up with it. it my father wasn't a preacher. My, great, my grandfather was on my mother's side, but I, no one ever really told me to do it. I just had a burden, a real sincere burden. And the, the most, my most favorite thing to do in life is to tell people what God's word says. And it was all because of the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe every person needs to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe a lot of Christians have these up and down roller coaster lives because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. You've repented from sins, but you've never been filled fully with God. And he has a gift for you. And, and you don't need to be worried about it. And you don't need to be freaked out about this. I, I can almost read it on some of your faces. You're like, oh no, I came to that service. Because you, you've experienced a couple of crazy charismatic Pentecostals in your past. These are the people who, who speak in tongues around the Thanksgiving dinner table. You don't know what you're going to do. Okay, listen to me. I just want to let you know if you've ever experienced a crazy charismatic Pentecostal, please understand me, me today that that person was crazy before they were charismatic at Pentecostal. They were a crazy heathen. They just became a crazy Christian, okay? That's because God doesn't totally renovate our personality. He works with it, Okay. But well, the point of the matter is, is that I believe that there is a power available to you that, that unites and uses all the other powers we've talked about up to this point in the series. Seven things we've talked about. The power of the Word. The Word of God brings power to our lives. Amen? The power of prayer. When we don't know what to do, we pray. The power of the name of Jesus. Pastor Geyser's message. We talked about that in week three. The power of praise. We talked about that. We talked about the power of community. And then we talked last week about the power of your words. Your words have power. But the one power that unites and empowers all the other powers is the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, Jesus is at the Last Supper with the disciples. John chapter 13, he washes their feet. Then he sends Judas off to betray him. And he tells the disciples, when are you going to betray me? Then he tells Judas, what you do, do quickly. They've just heard that one of them is going to betray them, betray Jesus. Then he turns to them all and he says, you're all going to leave. In a few hours, you're all going to run for your lives. They're all like, no, 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 we'll never, we'll never leave you. They're all like, no, no, that'll never happen. Peter's like, I, I'll die with you, Jesus. And, G and, Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, actually, tonight you're gonna deny me three times. Three blows to the disciples' spirits right there. Three consecutive blows. Judas betraying me. You're all gonna leave me. 
Peter's going to deny me. Boom, boom, boom. I wonder who's been through a few of those moments in your life. Not, how many know that it always works in threes? Something happens, and then another thing, and you just, ah. And I can just imagine the disciples are like, oh, my word, what is going on? And then the, the king knockout blow to their spirits. In John chapter 16, Jesus then tells them, I'm leaving. Oh, what are you talking about? You're leaving. He says, I'm leaving and I'm going away. I'm going to the Father. I'm going back. And I got good news for you. That's what he says in verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. Somebody say advantage. advantage. That means this is good for you that I go away. And then he says why? For if I don't, the helper will not come. But if I go I will send him to you. Underline him, circle him, because I want you to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. It's not the force like in Star Wars. It's a person, it's the person of God dwelling in you. That means he has a personal relationship. He can talk to you. He can warn you. He can advise you, but you've gotta be filled with him. You've gotta be filled with him. And Jesus said, I I need to go away. I am leaving so that he will come. The word helper there is parakletos in the Greek. Parakletos is a two-part Greek word. Para meaning to come alongside and kaleo meaning to call out. Here's what the helper, the Holy Spirit does. He comes alongside us and he calls out to us. Ladies and gentlemen, the Holy Spirit is the one who calls out to you right when you're in the midst of sin and says, this isn't right. He's the one who calls out to you when you're drifting from the Lord and says, hey, you know you're not on the right path. You need to get back. That's the Holy Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit is the one who says, hey, speak to them about Jesus. Speak to them about Jesus. He's the one who comes up when you're depressed and down. He says, don't worry. God is for you, not against you. I'm still with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. The Holy Spirit is calling out to his people on a regular basis. The question is, are we listening to him? And I think about this moment when Jesus says, I'm leaving, and the disciples, they're freaked out. They don't know what he's talking about. He's saying, I'm going to the cross. Let's put up verse uh, 16, 16. John chapter 16, 16. He says, a little while you'll see me no longer, and then a little while you'll see me. He's like, I'm going, and, and he kind of explained this already ad nauseum before in, the, in other passages, but he said, I'm, I'm gonna be betrayed, I'm gonna be handed over, I'm gonna be crucified, and on the third day, I'm gonna be raised to life. Now, he said that many, many times to the disciples, and every time they were like, what, what, what? And they didn't get it. They never got it. And there was, here was the point that Jesus was saying. I have to go to the cross. I have to take away your sins so that the Holy Spirit can come in. That's what it is. So in your notes, I've got a phrase there. It's a pop quiz. Pop quiz today, everybody. Jesus died and rose to what? Fill in the blanks. Fill in the blanks. Go ahead and try it yourself. There's probably a bunch of right answers. There are. I know there's a bunch of right answers, so don't worry about getting it wrong. But what do you think that answer is? Jesus died and rose to blank. And I bet you would say, yeah, save me. Uh, I bet you would say, forgive me. I bet you would say, to give me eternal life, to bring me to heaven, maybe to bring me back to God. Can I tell you, all those are right. Those are all right. But there's more. And Jesus is explaining that here in John chapter 16. Here's the one that I want to dwell with, and we're going to unpack this as we go through this text. Write this down. Jesus died and rose to fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Christian life is not just about getting your sins forgiven. It's not just about not doing bad things. A lot of people think that's what, Christ, that's what faith is about. That's what religion is about. Stop doing bad things. No. 
It's also about being empowered to do good things. That's what Jesus was. He was, he was empowered with the Holy Spirit that he might go around doing good to everybody. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. He went around telling everybody what, good, what God said, and he went around healing and, sit, and, and casting out demons and, and solving people's major problems. That the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus means to do good, means that the Holy Spirit must come upon you to do good. If Jesus needed the Holy Spirit, you would need the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is having this conversation, trying to explain this to disciples. And he says, listen, a little while and you will see me no longer, verse 16. And then after that, you'll see me. And, uh, and then he says in verse 17, uh, then it says in verse 17, some of the disciples, again, this is the fourth consecutive blow that Jesus has given them at the, at the Last Supper. Some of his disciples said to another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will, see, you will not see me. And then again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. In verse 18, John gives us further commentary. He says, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. John is building up the tension of the moment. And then Jesus, I love verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them. I love that moment. Because Jesus always knows the questions that you want to ask even when you're too afraid to ask. So he's like, oh, here we go again. They have questions. Let me tell them what they're asking before they even ask. And he says, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and a little while again you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, now notice what he says here. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into what? Into joy. What is Jesus talking about? Now for most of my young life, and I had even heard preachers talk about this, that the interpretation of John chapter 16, verses 16 to 20 was, that Jesus would die, rise to life, and go to the Father, and we wouldn't see him anymore. And then 2,000 some odd years later, going strong, we would then see him again, and our sorrow would be turned into joy. So when it talks about this little while where we wouldn't see the Lord, I was taught, and I don't know if you were taught this, but it's wrong, I was taught that that meant Jesus would go to the Father as he is right now, and one day, as he will, he will come back again. And while he's in the Father's presence, the world will rejoice because he's not here to bear witness to the truth and upset them, but the church would mourn because we need him. That's what I was taught. I don't know if you were taught that, but I'm here to tell you that's wrong. That's not the time frame that Jesus is talking about in this text. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact when he said, well, first off, he says a little while. When Jesus says a little while, he means a little while. <laughs> so he's not talking about this 2,000-year time frame that we're still experiencing where we're waiting for him to come back. He's talking about going to the cross. I, you won't see me. I'm going to the cross. They're going to bury me. You will not see me for a little while. When that happens... The world's gonna be happy. They think they've won. They think they've gotten rid of me. You're going to weep. And we all know that Peter, when, he's, when he does deny the Lord, he goes away and he weeps. And the, and the apostles, go, the disciples at that time, they go away and they, they weep. They're crying. They're scared. They're worried. They're nervous. Their dreams have collapsed. The world's rejoicing. Pilate puts two guards at the, at the tomb. 
It looks like the movement is over. They're happy about it. The disciples are depressed. But Jesus said, your sorrow will turn into joy. Because three days later, hallelujah, he did not stay dead. He came alive again by the power of the Holy Ghost. And he lives forever. He defeated death. Three days later, fast forward to John chapter 20, the disciples, Mary and the other Mary come to the tomb with embalming spices. They come to the tomb with embalming spices because they did not expect a resurrection. They were still weeping. Mary comes to the tomb and she sees that the tomb is open. And she's freaked out and she runs back and she tells the disciples, uh, the tomb's open. The disciples are like, what? And Peter and John, chapter 20 of John, they go running to the, to the tomb. And the Bible says that John just kind of stoops in and Peter runs in because Peter always has to go too far. Peter runs in and they're all confused and they're bewildered and there's no body. And they walk away. And then it says Mary doesn't walk away. I love Mary. She just stays there. She's, neat. She's like a good woman. She has to think things out from every angle. You know what I'm talking about? And she's standing outside the tomb and then she gets to thinking and she says, let me just take another look. And she looks into the tomb. And the scripture says in John chapter 20, verse 12, and she saw two, what? Angels in white. Notice the little factoid that John, who wrote the book of John, decided to give us. The two angels are sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid. One at his head and the other at his feet. What is that about? Who, who cares where the angels are, John? But every scripture is inspired by God. There's no accidents. There's not one flippant word in the Holy Scripture. What Mary saw at the tomb where Jesus' body had been laid was a picture that goes all the way back to the book of Exodus. When the people of Israel had come out of Egypt, God said, I want you to establish a place to worship me. There's one place where you worship me, one, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was made of goat skins and camel hair and poles, and they would set it up and move it wherever they went. And inside the tabernacle was an inner court and an outer court. And the, and the priests, the regular worshipers would go to the outer court, the priests would go to the inner court, and inside the inner court, there was a, another place. It was a cubicle structure, cubicle all size equal. It was called the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was a chest made of gold with a cover on top. Anybody know what the name of that chest was called? The Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a cover. Inside the Ark were the tabernacle, were the, were the law, the testimonies of the law, the Ten Commandments, the manna and Aaron's rod that had budded. And so inside, that's what was inside, but on top, there was a structure, it's a very interesting structure, that God commanded Moses to make it specifically like this. You're gonna put two angels on top of that cover, and both angels are gonna be at each end of the cover. You're gonna call that cover the mercy seat, and both angels are gonna stretch out their wings, and they're gonna touch, but their eyes are gonna be facing the mercy seat. And every day, and every year, right around this time of year, by the way, the Israelites would celebrate a feast called the Day of Atonement, and they would fast, and they still do to this day. But on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, one 
time a year. Wash his clothes, clean him up, go inside, offer the bull offering and the sacrifice of the one spotless lamb blood and pour the spotless lamb's blood on the mercy seat between the angels as they watch. And God says, and I will forgive the people all their sin through the atoning blood of the one spotless lamb between the angels on the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant. This is a picture, by the way, of the Ark of the Covenant. If you've never seen it before, you probably have seen it on uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can we put it up there? There you go. Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what the picture was. Exodus chapter 25 says this. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Make one cherub. Look at it with me. Exodus 25. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. And this was to be the place of offering the blood to purify all God's people from their sins. This, my friends, is the picture that God gave Mary, who had been delivered, by the way, from seven demons, who had probably been a woman of the night. And when she looks into the tomb, she sees a picture from ancient times in Exodus 25 of the place where God would provide forgiveness for sins, including hers, yours, and mine, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Those two angels were sitting there telling you something cosmic has happened. Something bigger than you can imagine has happened. And then did you know that there was all kinds of stringent regulations about that high priest as he offered that blood on the Day of Atonement? Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus, everybody's favorite Bible book. It said in verse 15, it said, He shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring the blood inside the veil and do with his blood as he did on the blood of the bull, sprinkle it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement. Let me just tell you what atonement means. You can break it down into three parts. At one That God brings a oneness between you and him through the blood of a spotless firstborn male lamb. And for thousands of years, the Jews practiced that ceremony. And when Jesus came, John the Baptist baptized him and saw him walking by the Jordan River and turns to his disciples and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Mary's staring at those two angels. And she's befuddled and she doesn't know what's going on and she goes outside the tomb and she runs into a guy and John tells her that she thinks it's the gardener. And she says, if you've taken away my Lord, tell me where you put him. Look what it says in John chapter 20, verse 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, look at this. Don't cling to me. Another translation says, don't touch me. Don't touch me. Sounds kind of cold of Jesus to do that. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go and tell my brothers and say to them, I'll meet them up again in Galilee. That's what he just told her. And she's running. She runs. And then he says this in verse 17. I am ascending to my father and to your father. To my God and to your God. But don't touch me. 
Why? Well, let's go back to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 17. When the high priest came in, it says this, no one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and makes atonement for himself and for the house and for all the assembly of Israel. There was a great ritual that the high priest had to go through to offer that blood one time a year. He had to change his clothes. He had to wash his body. He had to put on the holy garments. He had to go into the holy place, offer the blood. Then after the blood was offered, he had to take his clothes off, wash again, put his clothes back on, and come big ritual, big telling ritual, and no one was supposed to be in there. Listen, what he was saying. No one was allowed to touch the high priest as he made offering, because if anybody touched him, he'd be defiled. So when Jesus says to Mary, don't touch me, it meant that he was still up to something, not as a sacrifice anymore, but as our true and great and final high priest. What Jesus did on the day of resurrection, understand this, what Jesus did on the day of resurrection was he ascended to the Father and he brought the blood that he had shed three days earlier on the cross and he brought it not to an earthly temple, but he brought it to the heavenly temple because God told Moses, you make the temple on earth like the one I'm gonna show you in heaven. There's a replica in earth that represents what's going on in heaven and Jesus went into that tabernacle in heaven before the throne of God and he brought his perfect final sacrifice of sin for all the world and laid it on the altar in the heavenly places and God the Father said, accepted, paid in full, sins removed once and for all. No more need to sacrifice for sins. Then he comes back later that night in John chapter 20, verse 17. Notice what it says. He shows up behind closed doors with the disciples. And, and as he had said in verse 6, 17 to Mary, don't cling to me. Look what it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. He says to the disciples, see my hands and feet. This is the evening of the resurrection. See my hands and feet that it is I myself. Next two words, everybody. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and blood as you see that I have. Why no touching me to Mary in the morning and touch me and see to the disciples in the evening? Because that afternoon he had been to heaven and he offered the final sacrifice to make it available for you and I, not just to know God, not just to believe in Jesus, not just to be forgiven, but to be filled with the power of God. Hebrews chapter nine sums this up so very well. It says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, that's the one in heaven, he entered once and for all into holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Don't you see how the Bible all comes together? The Bible all comes together. The confusing passages of Exodus, the weird practices of Leviticus, the strange things that they saw when Jesus was around, and then the interpretation of all those things in the book of Hebrews, past, present, future, all center on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who ties it all together and fulfills the law and the prophets and makes a way for you and I to come boldly into the presence of God. That's our faith, friends. And this, this book was written by 40-some-odd different author, authors from all kinds of walks of life, from poets to, to slaves to former slaves to kings to princes to, to poor people. And it all comes together around one central message. The price has been paid for you to have a relationship with God that fills you totally and changes your life. It says this in John chapter 20, verse 20. 
The disciples were glad. Remember that, what Jesus said? Your sorrow will turn to what? Joy. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now notice this last line. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. What is that all about? Why did he have to? Do you know why? Because centuries earlier, he had breathed into Adam. Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it says the Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. But we all know how that story went, didn't we? Went poorly. Got about two chapters into the Bible and everything goes crazy. And they fall into sin and they run from God. And they died spiritually. We talked about that they didn't die physically, they died spiritually. And the fact that you're gonna die physically means it's because you're dead spiritually. But if you're alive spiritually, you're gonna be raised to life again just like Jesus was. But every human being outside of, that, of, the, of the faith of Jesus Christ, every human is a walking dead person, is a walking dead person. We need the breath of God. What Jesus did at the cross and in the heavenly temple to offer the perfect sacrifice and coming down to the disciples and breathing into them the Holy Spirit, he redid what Adam undid and reconnected man and God together. And that's what we need. That Jesus did not do all that just so that you could be forgiven. Some of you live this kind of Christian life where it's so focused on all the things you do wrong. Every mistake you make, oh, I know I'm such a bad person, I'm such a bad person, oh, I don't believe I blew it again, oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. And that's your life, that's your conversation with God. And I, you know, I get it. Humility, repentance is very important, it's foundational. You can't know Jesus without repentance. But some of you need to flip a switch and realize that he didn't just come to take away your sin. He came to put the spirit within. Came to fill you with the goodness of God. Came to fill you with himself. Another comforter, helper to be with you always who will lead you and guide you into all truth. As Jesus says in John chapter 14, 15, he says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you when? Forever. The spirit of truth the world cannot receive because it sees, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. The power of God in you is why Jesus died for you. So that brings me to my points finally. Some of you are like, what the? And if you'll notice, there's six points. So let's get started because the Holy Spirit power empowers all the other powers of this series. Part one, the word of God is the power to fill and form our lives. Well, here's point one in your notes. The Holy Spirit helps us receive and understand the word of God. Now, some of you know this experientially because you didn't understand a thing about the Bible until you got saved. And then suddenly it started to make sense. I had a conversation with somebody from service last night. They said, that's exactly what happened to me. I had no clue what the Bible meant. I had no clue how to read it until I repented of my sins and turned to Jesus and asked the Holy Spirit to help me. And it was like, bam! It just, and everything started to open up. That's right, because when you get saved, the third person of the Trinity 
who inspired the authors to write the book is there to help you understand the book. It's like reading Shakespeare. Anybody ever confused by Shakespeare? Of course you don't, because you don't read Shakespeare, do you? But if everybody had English like I did in high school, we had to read Shakespeare, and it was confusing. I couldn't. But how cool would it be to read Shakespeare sitting next to Shakespeare? He'd be like, well, that's what wherefore out there means. That's what that means right there. And, 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 and so here's what you get with the Holy Spirit. You get the one who wrote it there to help you understand it. So Paul will tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 12, now we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Circle the word that. That, that we receive the Holy Spirit. That, for this reason, so that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by what? The Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And by the way, this is not on the screen, but he goes on to say this in the next verse. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolish to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ladies and gentlemen, the world is supposed to think we're crazy. The world's supposed to think we're nuts for believing an old book. Oh, you're going to go and believe a book written by ancient peasants in the Middle East from 2,000 years ago? How stupid are you? Bingo. You're a natural person. You're not supposed to get it. We get it when we get the Holy Spirit. We get the Holy Spirit when we repent from our sins and turn to Jesus Christ. And suddenly that book doesn't just become an old dusty book my grandma had on the shelf somewhere in her house. That book becomes my lifeline to heaven. Number two, the Holy Spirit helps me pray in harmony with God's will. I love this promise of the Holy Spirit because he empowers our prayers. And I talked about week two, the power of prayer. So the Holy Spirit is there to help you pray. This is why no Christian should have the excuse, I don't know how to pray. Listen to the Holy Spirit. He'll help you. And the best part about it is, every time the Holy Spirit prays, he nails it. Look what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, verse 26. We don't know what God wants us to pray for. How many can agree with that? I don't know what to pray for. Okay, welcome to the club, Paul says. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. When you don't know what to pray, you just stay silent and you say, okay, Holy Spirit, help me. Same thing with the word, by the way. You get to a confusing passage in the Bible and you say, okay, Holy Spirit, you wrote it. Help me understand it. Okay, Holy Spirit, I'm going through this craziness right now in my life. I don't know what to pray for. What do I pray for? And you just listen. Sometimes prayer is just silence before the Lord and let the Holy Spirit lead you. Number three, the Holy Spirit convinces us of the power of Jesus' name. The Holy Spirit convinces us that there's power in the name of Jesus Christ. Again, the world thinks it's a swear word. The world uses it as a curse word, but we know it's a powerful word. It's the name of Jesus that, that demons flee. It's that the name of Jesus that we see blind men made to see. It's that the name of Jesus that we see our family saved, our children saved, our lives protected. The name of Jesus is the name above all names. 
How do you get convicted? How do you get convicted of that? The Holy Spirit, because Jesus said he will glorify me. The Holy Spirit will glorify. He'll make big Jesus in your life. That's why when Peter and John go to pray in Acts chapter three after the day of Pentecost, they go to pray, they see a lame man, and he says, give me some money. And Peter says, I have no silver, I have no gold, but what I have I give. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that guy got up and walked and danced his way into the temple. I'm seeing an increase in demon possession in my, in my ministry. I've never seen so much. And I think demons are starting to act out much more boldly in our culture as we have wandered away from God. And more now than ever before, the church needs to have boldness to say in the name of Jesus, get away from my family, get away from my children, get away from my marriage, get away from my heart. The therapist cannot heal your marriage. God can heal your marriage. The counselor cannot heal your children. God can heal your children. They can help, but they cannot heal. God alone is the power of God to heal and save and deliver. Confidence in the name of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies Christ in you. I got a great compliment from you guys, for, for you guys. A great compliment. I was blown away. Last week at church, afterwards, someone came up to me and said, I come from another church, and she mentioned the church that she comes from, and she said, I just love this church. She said, you know what is different about this church? There's a compliment for you. When the people of this church pray, they pray expecting God to do something. Ooh, I love that compliment for you, friends. I love that because it's true. We pray, we expect God to hear us. If you've never been to a first Tuesday and soon down in Apollo Beach, a first Wednesday, you gotta come and, and we call on God and then he just shows up in a mighty powerful way. That's what the Holy Spirit helps, helps us pray. Confidence in the name of Jesus helps us understand the word. Number four, the Holy Spirit lifts my heart so that I praise through my problems. That was week four of this series, the power of praise. How on earth can you praise God when everything is going terrible in your life? The Holy Spirit. He empowers praise where there should be complaint. He empowers praise where there should be despair. I think of Paul and Silas down in the prison, down in Philippi, and they're locked in the stocks in the dungeons of the prisons. And they're there illegally. They're there without cause, without justification, and they're in prison for Christ. And the Bible says that they lifted up their voice and they praised. They worshiped God in spite of their circumstances. How? They didn't know an earthquake was coming. They didn't know deliverance was coming. They praised because the Holy Spirit was in them. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18? Don't get drunk with wine. Some of you, that's a good word for you. Why do people turn to drugs? Why do people turn to alcohol? Because they can't cope because they can't figure out what life is going on. They're depressed. They're still ruminating over their childhood trauma and their past. They can't deal with it. Or they just want to party and have a good time and escape their troubles in regular life. They're looking in a false idol for the thing that only God can give them. Don't be drunk with wine as debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit because that feeling doesn't leave you with regret. You're never hung over when you're filled with the Holy Ghost. He says, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual singing, making melody in your heart. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can't help it but sing. And then verse 20, giving thanks always to God for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
What's a Holy Spirit-filled person look like? Someone who speaks in tongues like a crazy person? No, someone who's thankful in spite of their condition and circumstances. Someone who's glad when they should be sad. Someone who's got joy when they should be depressed. Someone who the world cannot shake their joy from. That's somebody who is filled with the Holy Spirit. He empowers your praise. Number five, the Holy Spirit unites the church in peace and community. The Holy Spirit that is in me is the Holy Spirit that's in a preacher in Uganda right now. And this is the beauty of the church. I have traveled all over the world. I have been to Africa and I have been to Asia and I have been to Central America and South America. I have been a lot of places in the ministry. And everywhere I go, I meet believers. And it's amazing, they won't look like me, they won't talk like me, they don't even have the same history as me, but the moment we know we're both believers in Jesus Christ, there's instant family. It's beautiful. You're never a stranger on this planet when you've got the Holy Spirit. You're not scared. You're not scared about other, you're not intimidated by people of a different color or a different tradition. Do you know why? Because you know there might be some people in that tradition and in that color that are saved and born again of the Holy Spirit. And that blood relationship through Jesus Christ is stronger than any blood relationship biologically in your life. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 4, 3, it says, maintain that. Maintain the unity of the what? Of the Spirit. There's a unity of the Spirit that we have to work for and fight for. The devil is the author of division. God is the one who brings us together in Jesus Christ. And number six, the Holy Spirit inspires words that convict the sinner, encourage the broken, and build up the church. Convicts the sinner. The Holy Spirit gives us words to convict the sinner. Your words should have conviction for sinners. Oh, I don't know. I don't like your opinion. I don't like that opinion. Yeah, of course you don't. That's called conviction. By the way, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world in regards to sin. Okay, listen to me very carefully here. Only the Holy Spirit can convict the sinner. What does that mean? It means that the Holy Spirit comes and tells the sinner, you are a sinner. You are not right. You need to be forgiven. You need to repent. You need to change. People don't like that message more now in this country than ever before in my life because everybody wants to blame someone else. Blame the politicians on the other side. Blame the rich people. Blame the poor people. Blame the cities. Blame the country. Blame this guy, that guy. Blame your mom. Blame your dad. Blame your children. Blame everybody. Blame your wife. Blame your spouse. Blame, blame, blame. And no one wants to hear the truth that the biggest problem in their life is themselves. The biggest sinner they'll ever meet is the sinner inside of them. And there's no change in them. I can't change them. The music can't change them. This church can't change them. Only the Holy Spirit can so cut deep into the heart of a man or a woman that they fall on their knees and they confess, I am the problem. I am a broken person. I'm a mistaken person. But I found Jesus and I need Jesus to save me from myself. It's why we offer the opportunity at the end of every service to put your hand up to say a prayer to say yes to Jesus. Not because we've convinced you through some linguistic mastery of the English language, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit that anoints the words of this book into the heart of the sinner and changes the sinner into a saint in one moment. He convicts the sinner. He encourages the broken and he builds up through our words. He builds up the church. I love the list 
of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, each is given a manifestation, verse seven, of the Spirit for the common good. There's nine gifts of the Holy Spirit, it says given the Spirit, the utterance of wisdom, verse eight, the utterance of knowledge. We could talk about these at another time, maybe on our first Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, to another by the same Spirit, the gift of healing. To another, work of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions each to, to each one individually as he wills. Understand there are nine gifts of the Holy Spirit and five of them have to do with your tongue. Remember last week we said no man can tame the tongue. The Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can take over how you speak to your spouse, how you speak to your kids, how you speak to your brother, how you speak to your parents, how you speak to your boss, how you speak to your teacher. The Holy Spirit is the power that empowers all the other powers that we've been talking about in this series, Power Up. Series in conclusion, write this down. The Holy Spirit is the power of God in you to empower good works through you. He wants to do that in your life. I'm, I'm asking all of you, listening to me right now, you need to move on from a Christianity that's only focused on all the bad things that you did. That's true. Now turn the page and receive the Holy Spirit so that he can empower good things through you.